0: Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal. Just let Just let it shine through. Just Love your soul.
1: Welcome to Metal Up Your Podcast Radio. I'm your host, Clint Wells. Sit back, relax, and come along on a journey with me, my friends, through the magic of music. All right, hello everybody! Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Hanukkah, Happy whatever the fuck you believe or celebrate or what you don't believe, or what you don't celebrate. Uh, it's all inclusive over here at Metal Lepre Podcast, of course. Those of you who've been on the ride with us long enough know that by now. Hopefully, about my my uh, my buddy and my co-host, my my confidant, Mister Ethan Luck, who is not here today. Maybe you're wondering what this is. Okay, well, this is a bonus radio episode. Uh, we're going to release this uh, on Monday. Ethan is going to have his own radio episode. I'm going to have my own radio episode. And these are just uh, good excuses to talk through some music we've been listening to. And I've picked out some stuff today that sort of a combination of some of my favorite songs from the year that are new. And then, of course, some of just songs I like listening to. And I've opened this up, as I usually do with these types of episodes, to an AMA and Ask Me Anything over on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I'm not on Facebook, and I've got lots of cool questions that will spur on all sorts of interesting conversations. And uh, different treks down some music that I love. And uh, it's just fun. We're going to have fun. I don't really pre-read these or think too much about them in the hopes that it feels more like a conversation, more like you guys have been invited into my studio with me. And uh, we're just riffing and talking about music and art and life and fatherhood and all sorts of fun shit. So we're going to get into those questions after this first song. And uh, I wanted to start off by uh, playing for you a couple of Metallica songs that you're familiar with but that you might not have heard in this way so I'll see you here on the flip flop let's check out these two songs Right, and there you have it. There was my versions of The Call of Cthulhu and Carpe Diem Baby from the newly released Cover Our World Blackened Volume 4. Maybe you're new to the ride and you don't know what that is. Uh, Ethan and I put together these cover EPs of mostly Metallica songs that we try to give to patrons as a way of saying thank you for supporting the show over there on the old Patreon. Once a new ver- uh, volume comes out, we make the previous volume available to everybody if they want to hear it. So Volume 4 is available for patrons now. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, dot com slash Metal Up Your Podcast. Go be a part of what makes the show unique and cool and different. And then for those of you who want to check out Volumes 1 through 3, uh, you can go to uh, metalupyourpodcast.bandcamp.com where you can lovingly stream or download and buy all of the previous uh, albums. All of it supports the show. That's kind of all I'll say about that right now. That was the first song that I recorded for Volume 4. And I was as I'm often doing, uh, hanging out in my studio before my first co-write of the day, which is usually around 11 a.m., and just playing around and just trying to maybe, we call them song starts. I don't really do this that often, but you want to kind of maybe get the creative juices flowing, and maybe when the person shows up to write a song with you, you already you have some ideas. Maybe you have some titles or some premises in the bank, maybe a chord progression, and I kind of came up with that. I started just singing the lyrics to Carpe Diem Baby over it, and was sort of shocked that it was working, and so basically what ended up tumbling out literally in about five minutes is pretty much a completely different song, just with the lyrics to Carpe Diem Baby, but I thought it still kind of maintained the interesting spirit of that song. It's a deep cut from Reload. It's one of my favorite Metallica songs of all time. This is all well-documented on the show. I know it's a, a divisive album and even a divisive song for a lot of you Metallica fans out there, so it was fun to just turn it on its head and explore a different angle of it and that's what that was a lot of fun so as I mentioned before this isn't ask me anything episode you all have come through beautifully as you are want to do and I'm going to read a few of these and see what happens I'm trying to pull it up on my phone it's as if I've never held a phone before it's as if I don't know how to work this thing all right and like I said now I kind of like when they come up I get these notifications and I'll kind of see like oh this person asked about this but i don't really like plan these or put them in order so i'm going to try to make some sense of this and sometimes i'll i have an agenda for songs i want to play and talk about but a conversation will spark uh you know inspiration to play some different music so and again this is just like a radio show i'm listening to all these songs with you and we'll be commenting on them and trying to turn you on to them um so here we go let's find one of these questions i just pulled it up once again it's as if i can't do this okay uh, Dirty Pots, this is on Instagram for right now. Says, uh, "I'd love to hear more about what about your love for Radiohead. How'd you get into them? What albums resonate? Why do you love them, etc." Well, I won't try to take too much time on this, but I would absolutely love to talk about Radiohead. They're one of my favorite bands of all time, uh, top ten for sure. When I first, <laughs> I always knew of them. Of course, everyone of a certain age in the '90s who watched TV would have seen the song "Creep," which is their biggest hit, probably their biggest hit ever. Uh, from their first album, Pablo Honey. I always liked that song and never really got that record though. And then, so from then on, I have almost no knowledge of Radiohead until they came out with a record in 2000 called Kid A. And at the time, I was in a band with a guy about four years older than me who was musically pretty intelligent, pretty smart dude. Looked up to him, as I'm sure you can imagine. And he was a big Radiohead nut. And uh he had been on the ride so for those of you who listen to Radiohead's music the jump from Pablo honey their first record to kid a is insane I mean it's ins- it's like Dylan going electric it's um it's like the beatles making drug records it's it's like it's, it's they're so different they could almost be completely different bands so I didn't have all that middle ground context that he had and kid a came out and we me and this guy his name is jeff Koontz it's interesting, like, we were really tight for about four years here. We were in a band together and touring and making records and writing songs. He actually, ma- <laughs> the girl I was dating during that entire time, he actually married her. And now they have a couple of kids and they live in Birmingham. But we were uh, listening to music a lot and writing music a lot together. We were, like I said, he was the lead singer of a band we were in. We were the primary songwriters. So he would be listening to Kid A. It was the new Radiohead record. Radiohead was his favorite band. And I'm going to be honest with you, I did not get Kid A. I did not like it. I didn't understand it. It was just too much for me. And he sort of just helped me figure it out. And, and like you do with most bands, you try to help someone hear it. You try to understand and be empathetic to how they can hear music and be open to it. And so he played for me their second record called The Bends, which had a song called High and Dry that was a hit, and it had fake plastic trees. But this whole record is just a wonderful rock record. Every song on it is amazing. And it's many people's favorite Radiohead record. It's still them kind of young and punky and raw and and rock and roll. It's mainly guitars. And, um, and actually really sophisticated for how old they were and having only had one record before that. And this is really when Radiohead started to just explode. They were famously on tour, I believe with R.E.M., in a support role. And as this tour went on... Um, Michael Stipe noticed that what was happening culturally with young people in Radiohead, and it became a co-headline tour with R.E.M. This is, I, I believe, in 95. R.E.M. would have been probably on their monster tour. So it was a big rock tour, and Radiohead was just freaking out. i always love that story because it, it says a lot about Michael Stipe. So anyway, so that record just blew the whole thing fucking wide open for me. That late leads to... Okay, computer. Their nineteen ninety seven Grammy Award winning uh, masterpiece, largely considered a masterpiece, one of the most interesting records of all time. Um, and it's it's still more Ben's ish. It's still a lot of guitars, but it's definitely starting to get weirder, a little more esoteric, tackling some heavier material. It's less personal and a little less accessible. Okay, that turns into Kid A and a, a sister record called Amnesiac, which were just electronic, mind-bending, deeply uh, dispersonal. Is that a word? Dispersonal? Deeply impersonal records. So you didn't really have that like, oh, he's singing about love or he's singing about the, um, a disaffected state of p- politics in his country. The songs are just very circuitous and strange, and you, you just map your own feelings onto them, which is a lot to ask of an audience, I think. From there, you have 2003 or 4's Hail to the Thief. Then you have 2008's and Rainbows. uh, And then you got uh, their last record, um, uh, which was A Moon-Shaped Pool, which is one of my favorites. I feel like I might be leaving one out. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. But here's what I love about Radiohead. They they do what all great artists do. They continue to shape-shift and evolve. And their records are just super brave. Like, they push the boundaries in almost everything that they do. They never just rested on their laurels and said, "Well, we've been incredibly successful over here. Let's just do this for a little bit. Let's make some money and get some security. Then we'll go be, you know, artistic forerunners and and attempt to change recorded music." They've just done that every step of the way, and there, there's just a you can see it so clearly now retrospectively. The appetite for newness and reaching something new, the exploration. Okay, that I've always loved in my favorite artists. Metallica is one of these bands, also. But Radiohead is as important um, and integral to the boundary pushing of music as Dylan, as Pink Floyd, as Rush. Um, they just did things that that were that weren't possible before. I, I mean, I, it sounds sort of dramatic, but I promise you, I'm not overselling that. Okay. Um, So if you are kind of interested in them but don't know where to start, maybe feel a little overwhelmed by it, I would start more with The Bends and OK Computer and then graduate up to Kid A. My current favorite Radiohead record, other than Moonshape Pool, which is their last one, is Kid A. So there's a little bit of, you know, ironic poetry there and that the record that I just could not understand is now my favorite. And really what it was, I just didn't have the muscle for it. You know, I was just I like, I remember I watched them do a song called National Anthem on SNL the year that record came out and Johnny Greenwood the guitar player doesn't play guitar he's like using one of those old like operator boxes where he, you plug in a cable and it's like beep pop boop pop, and you take it out and then it, it's a sample of another noise or the song the record opens with a song called Everything in its Right Place which, which when they play it live the instrument Johnny Greenwood plays is a little chaos pad which is what it's called a little pedal that you can it's got an XY axis you can manipulate it with your fingers and tom york's lead vocal is going into this chaos pad and the instrument that johnny greenwood plays the whole time is manipulating and reversing tom york's vocal which sounds pretentious but i promise you it's super musical and beautiful and there's nothing like radiohead in the whole world and i and truthfully i really honestly love all of their records really except pablo honey and i don't even really dislike that record i'm just not really interested uh, so for me from the Benz until recently especially their last record Moonshape Pool Moonshaped Pool is a dark slow piano driven melancholy um, meandering love record that if those adjectives resonate with you or sound like mm, that you know you need to check that record out okay and uh, I wanted to play a song from the bins. so this is the, again the 1995 record that kind of helped me get hip to them. And I wanted to maybe try to do that for you a little bit here. I chose a song called My Iron Lung, which there's a fascinating story about this song. An Iron Lung, as you may or may not know in the medical world, is something that keeps you alive, but it's 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 a two-sided coin because it's this heavy piece of machinery or whatever that, that it, it, you're alive, but it, it almost immobilizes you. And they wrote this song about their hit song, Creep, uh, because they never expected Creep to be a hit song. And in fact, the infamous... Uh, scratches in the song, those big guitar scratches that are like the biggest hook of the song are actually Johnny Greenwood trying to sabotage the recording because they hated this song. Um, Which is just, I love the irony of that story too. That's just like the coolest part of the song and it was them trying to fuck it up. That song took them to MTV and they're little indie artistic darlings and oh, I hate all the success and the MTV and we're famous now, boo-hoo. They sort of had some of that stupid shit that I really kind of detest, but they were young. You know, Pearl Jam did that too. I, I detest that shit. You know, I come from the school of Kiss where they're like, we want to be the biggest fucking stars in the world. Of course, this is what we've always wanted. But Radiohead weren't like that little Harvard graduate nerd art- artistic people who listened to Morrissey and all this. So they wrote the song called My Iron Lung about the song Creep. And uh, the lyrics are, are sort of cryptic, but when you understand that it's a song about their love-hate relationship with their biggest single. It'll make a little more sense. And uh, something to listen for with Radiohead always, no matter what the era is, and this is going to be a theme, I think, of a lot of the songs on this radio episode, are their penchant for texture. Um, It's not like they just set up two guitars, bass, drums, keys, and then just made a record. Uh, There are moments of the song where the drums sound completely different. Uh, There are guitar parts that come in and out, and... You know, there's a badass solo. There's a point in the choruses where they dip dip the vocals way down and put all this overdrive and distortion on the vocal. And it's a very texture-heavy song, which, uh, you know, for my particular music palette is just... I'm going to do the chef's kiss now. Okay? So uh, I'll quit talking for a second, and let's just listen to My Iron Lung together, and then we'll pick up some more of these questions. And uh, hopefully you dig it. And if you've never really given Radiohead a shot... uh, well it's a new year maybe it's time to do that There we go, Radiohead with my Iron Lung from the Benz. I hope you guys will check it out, man. That's it's such a rewarding band, such a rich band. I recently watched their two thousand nineteen Glastonbury headlining set on the YouTubes, and I think what I looked up was just wanting to see what they were, how they were playing some of their new material live, and kind of got they opened with a new song, and then I just ended up watching like the entire three hour show, and I was so just mesmerized and blown away by their masterful performance of their discography just the way that they blended all the songs together because these songs can be so different and just no bullshit minimal production no tracks just these five dudes and I think they have an extra drummer now on a stage playing these incredible songs um and I'll kind of contrast that actually with another one of my favorite bands Pearl Jam I watched one of their 2018 sets and honestly it wasn't very good um it, it seemed a little more like what you would expect of like, well, the songs are good. A lot of it's nostalgia. These dudes are getting older. It's just hard to maintain that punk rock attitude. And they may have just been a bad show. I mean, people who know me well know I absolutely adore Pearl Jam. It's no, it's, I'm not shit-talking that at all. Uh, but it is a fact that I just happened to watch these two bands that pretty much started around the same time, have a, about the similar amount of records out, similar fan bases, etc. Uh, I watched kind of what they're doing now and Radiohead was just way more powerful. All right. I'll put it that way. All right. Moving on to some more questions here on Instagram. Uh, Alan Dugall says, how much weed do you smoke before the episodes? And I hate to disappoint you, uh, uh, Alan, but the answer is 0% weed, which is, which is not a lot. It's, it's, that's, that's a pretty low number. Um, Ethan and I are both pro weed and pro pro-whatever-you-want-to-do-that-doesn't-hurt-anybody. It's not one of those. We're not really that prudish about it. It's just not really a part of what we do. And um, I like to be more clear-minded and and present and available, uh, pre- available in the present when we're doing the episode so that I can make sure that I'm doing the best to present entertaining, clear content for all you beautiful people out there who listen to us talk about Metallica. And that's just not something that I can do when I'm smoking weed. Which, honestly, I don't really do very much. Uh, It's just not really for me. I feel like I'm sort of past all those times for for myself. And being a dad, you know, i got a five-year-old at home. So it just doesn't really play a big part. And not that you can't be a good parent while you smoke weed and all that shit. But people respond to it differently. And it it depends on how often you do it. And I have some friends that are very, very functional weed smokers who produce uh, Grammy Award-winning records while they smoke weed, okay? And that's cool. I just can't do that. It doesn't really... F- for me, it's kind of a... Uh, I'm about to go to sleep. <laughs> you know, I'm about to... I'm gonna, I want to listen to a Radiohead album and go night-night on the bus. That's And I'll hit someone's pin like one time. That's about the extent of it. Now, there are some questions here about guitar playing. I'm going to couple these together. These kind of occupy sort of, sort of the same area. Stan Solo, 24, says, you may have mentioned this on an episode already, but what's the story of how you started playing guitar for the first time what prompted your interest in it? Well, you can see video, home videos of me as a child listening to the song Animal by Pearl Jam and voraciously playing air guitar. Uh, I, I remember even younger than that uh, calling my my neighborhood childhood friends when REM's Monster came out. And I remember very seriously saying on the phone, hey man, you need to come over to my house in about 15 minutes. Bring a tennis racket. And they come over confusedly with tennis rackets. I didn't even say anything. This is just the kids have a real penchant for drama. I just went over to the CD player in our living room at the time in Birmingham, Alabama and looking at them slowly pressed play. And what's the frequency Kenneth on the track one of Arium's monster came on. And then I just started jumping around like a rock star playing a tennis racket and their eyes lit up like fucking Christmas tree. And then we just pretended to be rock stars And uh, so anyway, I I think I was always interested in that kind of thing. My grandfather, who lived in Montgomery, Alabama, was a big guitar collector. And so I grew up anytime I was over there for the holidays or whatever, he would have all these beautiful Gibson and, and Martin acoustics just out everywhere. I mean, he had hundreds of guitars. You know, they had this whole room where he kept all the cases, but it was very country music oriented, very Grand Ole Opry, Hank Williams, Pat Boone shit which I came to love much later, as a kid, held very little interest for me, you know? I had faith no more in my Walkman, so those kinds of things never interest me, and there was always, um, you know, there was always definitely a vibe of don't touch this shit. (laughs) Don't touch these things. These are nice, you know? Why they had them out for all the cousins to jaunt around, I don't know, but I always liked the guitar, and I would, you know, I knew I couldn't really touch them, but sometimes in quieter moments, when i knew that no one was around i would just sit and stare at these guitars the guitars are a fascinating thing to look at this combination of wood and steel and the strings and you count them and they're shiny and then but then he, his guitars were very old and you could smell they smelled old and you had this sense of there was a sense of connection of like this music that i love so much may sound different but a lot of it's born from these machines these machines make this thing that i love And uh, I loved the guitar straps. Always had these elaborate designs and the tuning pegs. And you know, he would have these. He would have. He had several of these D forty five Martins that have hundreds of pieces of pearl and abalone, abalone, all over the guitar. So you really could. It's like looking at the Thriller album cover. You could just sit and look at these guitars for a long time and just imagine and dream. And. So fast forward to maybe 13 years old, 12 or, I actually was 12, 7th grade for me, tw- I was 12. My best friend at the time his name is Matt Harris. We're still we still chat occasionally to this day. He got an electric guitar and I thought that was pretty cool, but I didn't really necessarily feel like I'm going to get one too. Well, he really took to it and loved it. I remember he got a he got a black and white stratocaster, like a Mexican made black and white strat. From like you know, musicians' friend magazine or something, and then you got a little Marshall combo amp, and maybe one distortion pedal, an Orange Boss DS1. They're like thirty bucks, and uh, he took to it, and it, the spark really hit him, and he, he he ended up becoming a wonderful guitar player. For he still is probably a wonderful guitar player, and boy, what basically happened is he quit hanging out with me because he wanted to play guitar, and I didn't play guitar, so. <clears throat> He started to sort of devote himself to the craft of it, which is what you have to do. And I initially really just got a guitar so I could kind of keep hanging with him. I was kind of, I missed him. I, I wanted to, I didn't like being left out of that. So he he was six months ahead of me and he was super, he really took to it. It was really, it came pretty easy to him. He could, he could listen to the uh, Pearl Jam Alive, the solo, and read, there's something called tablature. It's not quite reading music. It's a little easier to read than music. Uh, it's sort of a number notation system where the numbers correlate with the frets and the strings on a guitar. So, once you learn how to read tab, it kind of opens up all these worlds where you can play your favorite songs. He could look at the tab for a Pearl Jam song and then play it and it would sound like that. It would it would amaze me, you know. I would always look at tab and sort of play a shitty v- bastardized version of it and it would only kind of sound it would sound like that version of whatever I was learning but like on a tape player running out of batteries or something, you know that had been run over by a car. But what happened is he would teach me the chords, so he would teach me E, G, D, A, and then I could play the rhythm part to a live while he soloed over it. And I don't know if those of you who make music out there, maybe it's piano, maybe you play guitar, uh, maybe it's a penny whistle, I don't know. But once you start start seeing behind the magic trick and you were like, oh, I can do this, because we would play, I, I learned the rhythm, and I, you know, I took to guitar also, just not quite with the dexterity that my buddy did. but once you once you start cracking the code a little bit and it does start to sound like your favorite records, it unlocks something inside of you that is indescribable and all the power of all the music that just on you know sort of a one-way street when you can't play music, you're just pumping it on this one road that only goes one direction into your soul once you can start letting that flow out. I just really can't even describe it well, but it's extremely powerful. And there is a definite sense of, holy shit, this is what I'm gonna do. And that coincides with like, you know, that was the first year I saw Kiss Live. Um, that coincides with like your first girlfriend that you love. It coincides with a lot of big moments in your life, but being able to be creatively expressive with in the form of music that you thought was complete magic um it's an important thing and that's kind of how that happened so that just led to well we're going to learn every song we can and we learned every song by all of our favorite bands and that that turned into you find a kid at school that can play bass you find someone maybe they can't even play the drums but they could at least their parents could afford the fucking drums and they're willing to lug them to your basement and then from that it turns into like your first little shitty band and then you maybe you write a few little shitty songs and every next level up feels closer to the goal and that's just enough you know that's enough to sustain you through all the hard lessons of it i mean i don't think i was good at it for a long time for maybe two years but you you level up in all these small ways and that's what just keeps you going you know and your ability gets a little better and you can maybe you know uh, you reach out maybe you could you go you can play the inner sandman riff that's fine and good can you play the rhythm part to the solo of one because we were big Metallica freaks at this time. And Metallica is actually a really huge part of how we got good at these instruments, because this music is extremely difficult to play. And we had that Metallica attitude where, like, you play it, and you play it right, all downstrokes, Uh You play it at, t- at record tempo. And then we would have Binge and Purge, and we were like, they play it faster than the fucking record, and that's what we're going to do. And so if I was, like, sloppy on the machine gun part to one, my friend Matt Harris, the same kid, was giving me a hard time about it. And if he messed up the tapping part of the one solo, I, I looked at him shamefully. And uh, mostly joking. We were just hard on each other, but that kind of thing spurred us on. And then when we found the guy that could do the machine gun part on drums, this little misfit kid, kind of a piece of shit kid named Brent. Brent McKay. Wow, I can't remember, I remember his full name. Uh, I'm sure he's a wonderful person now. He's kind of a shitty kid. Well, we all were kind of. Uh, we didn't even like him, okay? We did not like him in school. But he could play the machine gun part to one, and he had double kick drums. So guess what? He's in our fucking band. Immediately. No questions asked. Um, We we sort of tried on this mock pride that really we were learning from Metallica by watching all their videos and all these home videos and shit. We would try that on in our garages, you know? And, uh, and it really just stems from there. And I was lucky, dude. We always... We always loved all different kinds of music. We were never really snobby about Metallica necessarily. We were also learning Crazy on You by Heart cuz we thought Nancy Wilson was a fucking awesome badass too. And that was the year that The Chain came out. We, when Matt got t- together made a big record called The Chain. So the song The Chain blew our fucking minds. Gold Dust Woman blew our fucking minds out of the fucking universe, dude. I bought the tab book uh for uh, this tab book by Guns N' Roses called Guns N' Roses Anthology and before I knew it I'm playing the intro to Sweet Child of Mine can't overestimate how much that'll blow your fucking mind apart when you love this music so much. So those are some of the um, collage type images I have of beginning to play, uh, if that answers your question. Thank you for the question and the interest. Uh, Cthulhu45 says, do you play banjo or mandolin either for fun or recording? The answer is yes. I can kind of play my way through any stringed instrument um, because a lot of the fundamental rules apply to them once you understand the tunings or the you know the techniques of it, the same sort of concepts about a guitar and a piano, really, of harmony, chord structure, apply. So for a ukulele, which I love to play a ukulele, it was just like learning what the basic chords are to it. Then you're just off to the races. Then you kind of level up and you learn how to play like augmented chords or sus chords, minor chords, some transitions, some inversions. Um, I got a banjo when I was married to my first wife and I, I imagine a lot of people did this when Sufjan Stevens came on the scene and blew up. He had a record called Greetings from Michigan that people liked, a record called Seven Swans that people liked. But then he came out with a record called Come On Feel the Illinois, which was massive for the time, like 2005-ish. And everyone got a banjo. And so I had a banjo, and yeah, it was fun to like write on that. There's a thing in country music that's really common called a ganjo, which is a combination between a, a banjo and a guitar. So it's a six-string banjo. So it's like the drum head, and the, you know it sounds like a banjo. It is a banjo, but it, you play it like a guitar. So you don't have to go through all the, like, you can be a guitar player and get that banjo sound. Like, the six-string banjo or ganjo is what um, James Taylor played on Neil Young's classic song, Old Man, from the Harvest album. And no one hears that and goes, I don't know if that's a real banjo. I mean, like maybe some fucking Appalachian folk mountain types resent the sort of shortcut of the ganjo. But all I really care about is the sound and tone of it and being able to play it efficiently and quickly and be creative with it without attaching any kind of snobbery to it. And that's what a ganjo allows you to do. A mandolin, yeah, my wife got me a mandolin. It's, they're fun to chirp around on. There's a um, all sorts of kind of high-strung, cool, different guitars, a bazookie bazooki guitar, That's I believe, eight strings and tuned differently. Um, Anything with frets and strings, I can get around. And what's really fun about an instrument that you're not used to, and I recommend this to anyone who plays music, and I recommend this for any kind of secondary instrument, is to just... Songs will pour out of that. Uh, We were just at Lizzie and Joe's uh, for a Christmas party, and they were talking about how excited they were they got a Mellotron. Mellotron was made popular by the Beatles in the 60s, and... It's a really funky instrument that you play uh, the tactile playing of it. It's like a keyboard, but you can get all kinds of synth sounds and brass sounds. And a lot of the sounds of Sgt. Pepper were made on a Mellotron. Strawberry Fields, paddle, paddle. Um, um, I am the Walrus, those kinds of sounds. And, you know, I jokingly told them like, oh, I feel, you know, I feel bad for Hailstorm fans because you guys are going to write so many songs on that Mellotron that probably aren't going to sound like Hailstorm. Anyway. Uh, so the answer to that is yes the last one before we listen to some more tunes any guitar pedals that you've had your eye on recently that you've considered adding to your live or studio pedal board maybe a quick verbal run through of your current effects chain okay cool Um, thanks for the question so I have two different pedal boards I have one that I keep with the bus on tour that's um, probably like more middle of the road stuff just so I don't have to worry about it getting damaged or anything and it's very utilitarian Let's go on stage it all works it all sounds great boom play a show go home now my studio board which is sitting here right now beneath my desk um i'll walk you through my chain okay so i hit a volume pedal and this is my nicer more boutique stuff and it stays here i i go from a, a volume pedal which i love these um these roll-in uh, volume pedals i use the ernie ball metal ones for a long time but they they a volume pedal is really just a volume pot, meaning it's a knob, and what a volume pedal does is allows you to turn this knob from zero to ten with your foot. So you could do swells and ambient stuff, and or you could just kill your volume while you tune, or if you want to, if you want to keep your volume pedal at seventy-five percent, you can kick it all the way up to one hundred percent to play a solo. There's all sorts of different applications for this, but the string on these Ernie Ball volume pedals breaks all the time. It's a huge pain in the ass. So I got these rolling volume pedals, and now I have like I have one on my my live board one here in the studio. Um, they don't use that string. I don't really know what the mechanism is, but anyway, I go from the volume pedal into a diamond compressor and people use compressors for all different things. I use my compressor as an always on type effect. It squashes your highs and, 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 uh, your lows and it it compresses your sound. This makes everything sort of smooth and punchy. Hard to explain, but the diamond when look it up, diamond makes some great stuff. But their compressor is easily one of the best ever. I go from that into my first overdrive chain, which is a uh, a Voodoo Lab Sparkle Drive. Uh, I'll try to make some of this quick, guys, because I don't want to bore anybody. The Sparkle Drive is cool. It's basically like a an 808. It's like a tube screamer, but it's got a clean blend. So you you've got if you turn it on, you've got your overdrive sound. It sounds kind of like I Feel Fine by the Beatles or like jangly the birdsy stuff. But what you can do is you can mix your clean sound into it. And so finding the sweet spot on that just gives it this great chimey thing. The wells use this a lot. Um, it gives it this, this great chime and a great punch. It cuts through. And that's kind of my first little overdrive. So it's not, I don't really use that for anything heavy. That's just like a good jangly, it's not 100% clean, but it's a little broken up. It's almost like a, a, a basement amp or a Princeton amp crank, just a little bit, okay? From that, I hit two Barber pedals, These are and these are my different other two gain stages. One's called the Gain Changer, which is more of like an American-type overdrive. It's for medium gains, and it's cool. It's got all sorts of dip switches, and it's a very versatile pedal. You can really get a lot of color out of it. That goes into another Barber pedal called a, called a Direct Drive, which is like uh, uh, my, my higher-gain Marshall-in-a-box sound, Zeppelin-y, Hendrix-y stuff. So those... And then I have a fuzz pedal called a um, uh, a Twin Bender, which is basically a, a, a boutique remake of the classic 60s Tone Bender pedals. And uh, can't say enough things about it, such a cool color. I will say that I don't use it very often, which is kind of a bummer, because it's such a cool pedal. Then that goes into what's called a, a Strymon Flint, which one side of it is a reverb, another side's a tremolo, really cool pedal. Look it up if, you're, if you haven't heard of it. That goes into a Strymon Timeline, which is kind of the industry standard Big Daddy delay pedal. It can do any kind of delay you can imagine. It's got bucket brigade delay. It's got tape delay, reverse delay, digital delay. So if you can take the time to go in and program it and find all your fun sounds, like I've got about 10 things that I've, I've found for that. Okay, so like a Memory Man sound, a great slap back, some great reverse stuff, some swells, some uh, some shimmer craps in there. Then the last thing this hits is an Eventide H9. And what's really cool about the H9 is you buy the shell of the pedal, and then they have all these different algorithms that you can buy for like 20 bucks. So you can sort of custom make this pedal into anything you need. And I think what I, I got all a bunch of like reverbs and delays, choruses, tremolo, um like rotary speaker stuff. I mean, it's just, and then, you know, they constantly are developing new algorithms that you can get, and they all go on sale. and It's just massive sculpting tools for tones. So that's that board. In terms of new pedals I'm looking forward to, I don't really, I've kind of been out of that game a little bit. I've, I've lost a lot of interest as I've started to develop more as a songwriter and a, and a producer. I've lost some interest in the guitar playing nerdery the black hole of pedals. And part of that too, I think, is that I, I took really took the time and 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 slowly bought the best pedals that do what I need to do. So I kind of have the best pedals that I can think of. I would love to have more money to just experiment with because there's a ton of great weird stuff being made all the time. The, the, it's never been a better time to get into the pedal game or the, the weird sound game. There's a company called Earthquaker Devices that makes just really great far out stuff and uh, I just don't have the time, really, or the money to dabble as much as I did when I was a bit younger, and I've already got good stuff. So I hope that answers your question. Now, someone mentioned the Wells earlier, and since I just mentioned them, um, this is Bane1775, says, thank you guys for the radio episodes. I've discovered several bands I probably wouldn't have heard of without them. Most notable is the Wells. I bought digital copies of their albums, but it's pretty hard to find physical copies. I've got a few I'm looking at on Discogs and I'll probably end up buying them on there. I hate to hear that they're hard-to-find physical copies. It's just such a shame. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Wells, it's a Brooklyn-based band that were active until, uh, well, they've kind of come and gone a lot over the years, but my heyday for them was in the early aughts. And they're just a great rock and roll band. I don't know how else to really explain it. Great songwriters. They had this really great attitude that I've carried that attitude with me as long as I've loved music, and I was actually pretty shocked by it when I was a kid in the early aughts kind of right before starting this whole journey playing professional music they were a band that hovered in my consciousness a lot I went and saw them in little clubs a lot became friends with some of them still friends with some of them to this day and uh, it makes me really happy to turn people on to them I'm going to play a song right now called The Lost Complaint from 2003's album Bastards of the Beat and I hope you dig it here's the Damn Wells. Go Sam Wells with The Lost Complaint from Bastards of the Beat. I remember seeing them at a little bar, or a little club called The Nick in Birmingham, Alabama. And I was right up front, just like a little fanboy. And uh, I remember not knowing that the lead singer played that guitar solo. And when that moment came, of course, I'm looking over at the lead guitar player, because I play guitar too, bro. And I'll never forget just looking over, and the lead singer just took the solo. He had no guitar pedals. He plugged a Les Paul into a Dr. Z amp which Dr. Z amps have this big Z on the front. And the lead singer's name is Alex Deason. And he had had written Deason with the Z of the Dr. Z is his name on it. It's just amazing the little things you notice about stuff like that when you really love something. There's not a lot to distract you from this kind of singular thing that you're passionate about and interested in. And all those little things just leave impressions. And I'll never forget it. It was a red Dr. Z amp. And he took the solo. He didn't turn any pedals on. He didn't change his tone at all. It was just loud. The spirit of that is what was captured so well in the Damn Wells. A very rock and roll spirit. Um, and then, of course, the guitar player was cool. And this was at a time where bands would play the Nick, and then there was like, there's no dressing room at the Nick. So either before their set or after their set, you would just hang out with them right out front and drink. And you could just talk to them. <laughs> You got to understand, these people were like the Beatles to me, and you could just talk to them about whatever. You know, I was going through a big Neil Young thing, and I remember talking to the guitar player Dave Chernas about Neil Young. And that conversation meant a lot to me. You know what I mean? Anyway, let's kick it to some more questions and see what's going on in the Ask Me Anything land. Someone sent us, we got a bunch of really sweet Merry Christmas posts from people, um, which I really appreciate that stuff. Let's see what else we got on the question front. Uh, I don't know why I don't have this already. Eric Letart says, Do you have a favorite Metallica bootleg? Minds and Justice for Woodstock 94 performance, in my opinion, far superior to the 99 performance. What's your feeling about Metallica live albums and live albums in general? What's your fave? I don't have a favorite Metallica bootleg um, because I don't really listen to those. Um The only band of my whole life that I really got into bootlegs with was Dave Matthews' band. And that's because um, every show is different. And when you are in, you know, my friend Dan Kanner is the same way about Dave, but he's also way into fish. And when you're into bands like that, you do this thing called chasing songs where you're, you know, you're trying to, they may play some rare stuff. You know, they, even if they're touring an album cycle, they may just for one night only either play something they've never played or something that's super rare. Or with these kinds of bands, a band like Fish or Dave Matthews or the Grateful Dead, I imagine it's almost even sometimes a, a combination of songs might be so rare. Like, oh, they went, you know, they went from Halloween into Two Step. Holy shit! Or even where they play the song in the set. Oh my God, they opened with Pig, which is normally the first encore song. So that's the type of excitement around listening to bootlegs. Um, or or they did the last stop, but Dave changed the the lyrics to the third verse. That's just not the stuff that you're going to get from chasing down Metallica bootlegs. And people listen to these things for different reasons. They want to hear the fire, the energy. They don't want to hear it too polished. Maybe there's some like James Hetfield banter. Maybe it's the thrill of hearing um, the different intros to For Whom the Bell Tolls that Cliff would play. Or his crazy intros to Whiplash, which would definitely be different every night for sure. I just don't really go... That's not an area of Metallica that interests me as much. So for me, I love them live, but I tend to like the polished stuff that they've put out. Cunning Stunts being probably my favorite. Seattle 89, which I just got for myself, the uh, Justice box set with the Seattle 89 vinyl. That's been really fun to listen to. Amazing show. Amazing amazing time in the band. Like, bright pre-Black album, so they're just playing the Damage Justice material. Whereas the Mexico City and San Diego is just you know peppered with all the black album stuff and um I will say in the in the Woodstock performances I actually prefer Woodstock 99. That is a bootleg I have watched several times because the that's just the era of the band that I find so powerful and interesting and um and the material, you know, I love that they played Bleeding Me. I also really like the escape from the Studio Club shows that they did in in uh in London. I've watched those a few times. Um, but again, it's really more about the era of the band than it is about like closing my eyes and sonically getting something out of that. General li- live albums in general, I'm more interested in like the visuals, I'm more interested in watching it. Um, musically, of course, Kiss Alive is really important for me. And I'm trying to think of other live albums. Of course, with a lot of the Dave Matthews official stuff. Benjamin Purge was a, a mainstay for me as a kid in terms of like the Mexico City CDs were big. Uh, but for the most part I like hearing records I like um I like the immediacy of live and I like how live you have to just pull it off with with yourselves and there's nothing to hide behind and philosophically I find that really intriguing and interesting and when bands do that well um there's a power in that you just can't you can't fuck with uh but i I like more so artistically the ability to make something on record that you can't even do live the it's just a different medium where so much is possible background vocals and different colors and textures and parts and additional musicians and and overdubs and and you can p- f- p- you know fade and pan and do all these tricks you know i've always been really and you know that that sort of informs my interest in being a producer myself these days i i love writing a song and being able to 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 get to the part of the of the of the process where I can just put color and candy over it and make it uh, sonically magical and interesting. The song's got to be good and you got to be able to pull it off live for sure. Those things are extremely important. But I like the idea of the recorded part of it being a different deal and being uh, the, the more options seem available. I really like that. Okay, good question. Thank you for that question. Um let's see. Jay Bird aurora's eyes which i remember that there's a band called aurora's eyes we played some of that on the show before i know in various episodes you talk about wanting to get your hands on a snake bite if you did would you want to do specific modifications to it so you could utilize it more for your current gig any pickup preferences you would swap on it or would you leave it stock i think they come with the headset stuff which are like james's sort of hybrid passive active pickups i i don't think i would mess with it almost every guitar i have i've changed out the pickups because. Um, I need to have a lot of versatile uh, array of tools. But having said that, if I got the snake bite, it really would just be for that one thing. So I could play Metallica riffs or play Lunar Satan stuff or heavy stuff. So I think I would just leave it stock, you know? But I'm also open to like, I don't know, it sounds like you may know more about it than me. So if you and I were having a beer or a coffee and you were like, dude, you got to check out, you got to get those EMGs out of there, put Demarzios in, and I played yours and heard yours, and it sounded great. I'd definitely be open to it. I'm not really a purist about anything. I think any any all of this stuff are just tools to be creative. And there are people who either can't be creative or are scared to be creative, who get real wrapped up in technical parts of the gear as almost an excuse not to put yourself out there and do something. And I get impatient with that, you know, whether it's outboard gear with my studio or plugins or or pedals or guitars, amps, uh, you know, I don't go too deep in the rabbit hole with that stuff because I find it distracting from what I'm using it to do, which is create something. And there's some beauty in stumbling upon stuff and not really knowing how it works or what, you know what I mean? Like the limitations of those uh, boundaries sort of create some good shit in there too. All right, let's do one more before we move on to some more tunes. Let's see here. Aurelian Moreau says, I've mentioned once or twice, you've mentioned once or twice that you were a Counting Crows fan in the day. Do you still like them? He says, Great's not my favorite color, but their first album is part of my lifetime favorite albums. Cheers. Um, massive Counting Crows fan, for sure. And I don't think I've been interested in anything they've done since their last, the album that they put out in 2008 called Saturday Nights and Sunday Mornings, which was a double album of half rock songs and half acoustic songs which I thought was a very good album. I loved it. And for kind of mysterious reasons, I haven't been very interested in them anymore. Um, I'll watch some live stuff on YouTube, but it's really their first four or five albums that occupy a really unique space in my love of music. August and Everything After, their debut, produced by T-Bone Burnett. Recovering the Satellites, amazing. Uh, This Desert Life. And then my favorite Counting Crows record is a record called Hard Candy, which came out in 2002, and then the Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. So that's kind of my, that's where I all my Counting Crows stuff live. I've seen them twice. I saw them do a co-headline tour with Live in 2000, and then I saw them do a co-headline tour with the Goo Goo Dolls of all people in 2006. And was shocked to see that most people were there to see the Goo Goo Dolls. I remember being really legitimately surprised by that. And then it seemed like people only knew the song Mr. Jones, where, of course, gray is my favorite color, can be found. And for those of you who don't know, the Counting Crows rarely perform their songs the same live. They're very, very Dylan-esque in that way. Robert, Adam Duritz is a huge Dylan cat. And even the song Mr. Jones is an allusion to the song Ballad of a Thin Man from, uh, from Highway 61. And there's even mentions of Dylan. He even says, I want to be like Bob Dylan in the song Mr. Jones. Um. So anyway, they never played the song twice So they played Mr. Jones Which is kind of finally when everyone around us at least Started to give a shit about the Counting Crows set Who played first, by the way And then everyone was just really butthurt That it didn't sound like the radio version Which I always loved I always found that interesting and artistic Anyway um, But, but listen to me, dudes The Counting Crows are an amazing band There's no one who sounds like them This is another theme in a lot of the music that I love I, I love almost all music and i'll give anything a shot even something that i think is sort of disposable like i loved Katy perry's first record teenage dream i just loved it i thought the songs were well done i was interesting in dr uh, luke's production but i don't love that record the way i love dark side of the moon it, it you know the, you, these records all can go somewhere um i like lily allen records uh it's not me it's you or wait it's not you it's me i can't even remember what it's called I, f- I feel like it's kind of disposable, but it's good disposable. It's it's like I uh, I don't know. It's like eating it's like eating a uh, uh, Panda Express or something. You know what I mean? Uh, Panda Express is fine. No big deal. It's not it's not great. Um, but Counting Crows is a band that really is great, and there's a lot to chew on there. It's a nutritious meal. if We're going to stick it in the culinary. Stick with this culinary uh, analogy. They are, they bring so many different things together, kind of folk rock. There's some country in there. There's some straight rock, and listen to this, dudes. The the and Adam Duritz is like the face of the Counting Crows. I bet none of you know anyone else in the Counting Crows. Okay, Dave Emmerglock and uh, uh, the, the, the keyboard player Ben. The drummer's name is Charlie. I just know some of this from liner notes. But the band members in the Counting Crows consummate musicians, especially the guitar players. The guitar playing on some of these records is so amazing. And the songwriting is really great. It just really is. And people got turned off by Mr. Jones, which is fine. And Adam Duritz seems to kind of be a a, a sort of celebrity, or he did, be a sort of celebrity-hungry, you know, melancholy douchebag. I understand all that. I don't think that's what he is. I think he got wrapped up in that shit. But anyway, I've said enough. It's worth really checking out if you haven't. And I'm going to play a song from my favorite Counting Crows, Crows record, the aforementioned 2002 Hard Candy. Now, this is what I want you to listen for, okay? I talked earlier about texture. This is a kind of a down song that's built around the the bones of a really simple drum beat with a 16th-note hi-hat. But here's what I want you to listen to. Hopefully, you got cans on. If not, just turn turn it up a little bit in your car. Um, Listen to the elements that just come in and out, okay? You've got a guitar on your left that's an acoustic doing some picking. You've got another guitar kind of over on the left somewhere that's doing this what I call paint guitar, this sort of non-accented brush st- style percussive playing. At some point, a banjo comes in. Th- there's this like uh, w- cool Rhodes sound that's got a tremolo on it that's pinging left and right. You've got this uh, wobbly wah guitar. You've got a fuzz guitar solo, and then the whole time over this whole sonic landscape, it's like a this is like a it's like a beautiful painting. It really is. You've got Adam Durrett's singing the song where the song is actually the melody the lyric and it's just beautiful imagery it's left of center and it's interesting it's and it's it's pretty and uh I've said enough about it already dig it with me here folks this is a song called good time <laughs>
0: He just wants to look good for you So he rushes in to tell you what he did today But he can't think of what to say I think you listen anyway He wants to have a good time Just like everybody He doesn't want to fall apart You watch him as he stutters over what to say It's just a little game you play It's no you could tell them it'll be. I suppose that his shit went in, even though I couldn't say I've been the places that you've been, you know he made my heart real strong, even if he made my head
1: And there you have it. Good time the Counting Crows. I I find that musically and lyrically actually pretty deep. And uh the song Mr. Jones is lyrically extremely deep. And I do recommend that if that's if that tickled your uh you know, that scratch and itch that you maybe have or didn't even know you had, I do recommend doing a deep dive with those dudes. And if you want to just get one record and kind of Sometimes it's it can be overwhelming to have someone's entire catalog looming ahead of you. So I do recommend that one record, too, Hard Candy. Go go get involved in that if you liked what you heard. And uh, if you didn't, we're going to move on, and that's fine. Let's we'll see what else we got here in the question department. Lots of questions. I want to make sure I get to them all, because I do appreciate those of you who take the time to ask and, uh, and those who listen. Clark Wayne, a homie from Nashville, says, How much of Lulu have you listened to? Just sat down with it the other day, found some parts that I really enjoyed. I've only listened to it one time a long, long time ago, and I did not remember liking it. So, you know, we've got the episode coming up for sure, but we'll do a deep dive, and I'm going to make sure that I give it some spins before we do the commentary episode, because, you know, I, I think it's interesting what Clark is saying. There's some stuff to like there, you know? And I know Tom Quee over in Alpha Metallica has done some of his typical deep dives into each of the songs on those records, and I've listened to all those episodes, you know? And, you know, there's always some sort of surprising commentary about like, "Well, oh, this is cool. This riff's cool. This moment's cool. Uh, this was maybe a little too long. This would have been cool if it was just blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking forward to sort of forming my own opinions about that. Uh, that's the nice I'll say about it. Part of me sort of dreading the experience because it, like some things in life that are rewarding, it doesn't sound fun <laughs> to listen to something I don't think I'm going to like. But we will do it as we are continuing this journey of having deep dive combos about all aspects of Metallica and that's a part of their story and it's an interesting part of their story it was an interesting left turn it's part of what makes them an interesting band is their foray into those different territories their fidelity to them their commitment to them I think it's cool so thanks for the question Clark I'm looking forward to getting that one under the belt for sure uh, Dirty Potts has another question that says what are your thoughts on kids music did you expose your daughter to the Beatles right off the bat? I have a three-year-old myself, and have enjoyed your parenting references. Well, that's cool. Um, kids' music's not super fun to listen to. It's not really the tone of children's voices isn't isn't great. And many of them don't know how to sing in key yet, so you got to kind of figure that out. You know, when she was super young, we always played music around her. But she, you know, she she, she had the capacity for things like "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star," which was her favorite song. That would be. Uh, our kid did not sleep through the night for over a year. We had a very long first year of not sleeping. And and my wife really took the brunt of that because I was touring. But Twinkle Twinkle Little Star would be a song that was really pleasant to sing, simple melody. I liked singing it to her, and it would always calm her down. And to this day, we talk about that. And sometimes when I put her, she's five now, I'll put her to bed. And you know she likes to hear stories about that time. You know, Daddy, what was my favorite song when I was a baby? Even though she knows the answer. But what's the so fun about it now is we'll talk about Twinkle Twinkle and we'll sing it together, which is just really beautiful. Um, another song I sang to her a lot, trying to get her to calm down and go to sleep that I think she really liked was uh, Sweet Baby James by James Taylor. Beautiful lyric. If you don't know that song, what's wrong with you? Great song, lullaby. Uh, I think starting around three is when we really started to play the Beatles and when she really started to latch onto it. And really without any... Um, it was really just more like we were getting aging out of the Mother Goose crap and aging out of just the kid crap about like ABCs and stuff. And I could I made a mix of twenty to twenty five Beatles songs that I thought were more kid friendly, like Ob-La-Di, da Octopus's Garden, Yellow Submarine, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Uh, you know, uh, uh, um. <laughs> one of the ones I put on that early mix was a really weird deep cut uh uh you know my name look up the number um just fun stuff like that uh say the word and you'll be free say the word you know and it was really fascinating to see her latch on to these songs really without any prodding and she could see like the cd you know like track what the tracks were and she'd say number 8 you know which whatever would be Ticket to Ride, which is her her favorite for a long time. And then her favorite for a long time was Here Comes the Sun, which was track 11. She loved All You Need is Love. Love, love, love. She loved Strawberry Fields Forever. She really gravitated towards the John stuff. Like she didn't really like Yesterday. Um, She liked Penny Lane, which was Paul. She didn't really like I Saw Her Standing There. I always thought she would like that one. She loved I Want to Hold Your Hand. And she can actually sing. Like if I play that the chords to that she will sing it and she'll sing yellow submarine and i you know whatever i can't really i I won't be able to fully articulate the joy as a massive beatles freak of being able to share this music with my daughter i just will not be able to communicate that in a way that does it justice if your parents out there and you've done it then you know what i'm talking about and maybe you can imagine it it's i'm not putting that on you guys that maybe don't have kids maybe it's easy for you to imagine that it's hard for me to articulate Another band that my daughter loves is Tom Petty. My wife is going through a big Tom Petty thing. And Don't Do Me Like That was one of her favorite songs. She likes Refugee also. She's kind of a Damn damn the Torpedoes type cat. That's what we've played mostly around her. Um, and my wife listens to a lot of Spanish music that my kid loves. My kid loves to dance. So lately I've been going through this massive Bob Dylan thing. I don't want to bore you guys with it, but it, it is a bit being like hit by lightning. For the first time in my life, I'm kind of completely obsessed with Bob Dylan. So we've been listening to a lot of uh, Blonde on Blonde together, and she gets a real big kick out of singing Stuck in mobile with the Memphis Blues Again. Um, And that's fun to do with her. So it's a tough thing, you know, because you want to expose them to stuff because that's your job. It's like you're really your job to teach and expose your children to to great art and to great ideas that you think will help them become great people. But you don't want to push things on them, right? You don't want to... You don't want to push an agenda. I don't want to. I don't want to come at her in such a way with the Beatles and Dylan or even Metallica in such a way that, as she gets older, she feels like she needs to rebel against that. If she doesn't want to listen to that shit later, that's fine. I just don't want it to be for any of those sort of dubious kid reasons, like, oh, I have to be. I have to be cynical and grumpy at the world now because I'm 11. And, and what does my dad love? He loves Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan's out. You know. I want her to just have like the joy of discovery, and I want her to just flow. I want her to feel the freedom to flow through all of this music. You know, we listen to Miles Davis a lot together, and we love the album Kind of Blue. And you know, if I go ba 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 boop ba da do, my daughter will go ba do. We can sing these hooks to So What because we we rock it so often in the house, and uh and I try to teach her too. You know. I'll hold up album covers, and I'll say, who's this? And she'll say, Miles Davis. I'll say, who's Miles Davis? She'll say, one of the greatest musicians that ever lived. And I say, that's right, baby. Who's this? Bob Dylan. Who's this, baby? She'll say, Bob Dylan's one of the greatest songwriters that ever ever lived. I'm like, that's good. She came and woke me up the other morning, and she had written on a sheet of paper. She's like, hey, I want you to read. I wrote something for you. And I looked at it, and she had written the sentence, Bob Dylan is one of the greatest songwriters of all time. She wrote that for me one morning and gave it to me as I was waking up. Okay. Now, I can't talk too much about that kind of stuff because I'll start crying. I just thought that was so beautiful of her. She's got such a beautiful mind. Um, DH Fitness Training says, What's your favorite song from Saint Anger? Great question. My favorite song, probably pound for pound, is Dirty Window. I love the aggression of it. I love the concept of it. It's really for that record, which I don't think is real heavy on concepts. Except for the one, uh, I think "Dirty Windows" got that great imagery of the judge, jury, executioner slamming the gavel down, trying to look through a dirty window. Uh, it's it's heavy, it's interesting, and of course, I like the unnamed feeling a lot. There's a lot going on in the unnamed feeling. It's the, probably the best lyric on the on Saint Anger, and I've always sort of mildly liked Frantic and some kind of monster. Songs that have really come around for me in a big way would be like My World or All Within My Hands. Those songs I didn't like much ever. Now I've kind of dig them. I still don't really like St. Anger, the song. I still don't really like Invisible Kid, Shoot Me Again, Purify. You know, there's Sweet Amber. I don't really those never really came around for me, but Dirty Window is no problemo, and I would love to see it live, honestly. Another question from DH Fitness Training is are you disappointed that metallica has only released two albums after rob joined the band and i don't know It's never really has occurred to me to feel disappointed in them and i'm not saying that's the right answer but i don't think i really have ever felt that way if you have said like hey you want another metallic record the answer is obviously yes but if it's framed in the way of like are you disappointed in what they have done uh the answer to that is honestly no Death Magnetic was a great, dense record, and Hardwired is a great, dense record. And in the meantime, there's so much other shit to listen to. So I don't really resent them for it. I know that they spend a lot of that time touring and doing, make, creating a festival, creating a film, spending time with their families, enjoying being rich people. And I forgive them for all that, you know? He goes on to say, What do you think Rob adds to the band as Jason was a beast live and a great background singer and Cliff was Cliff? What other than being in the band the longest are Rob's accomplishments? Well, Death Magnetic, Rob has a co-write on every song on Death Magnetic. All four members were given equal co-writes on that record. Now, was that some sort of spiritual response to the creative struggles of Jason and part of the cleansing process of Rob's first proper record with the band? Probably. But I do think Rob also was creatively involved in the making of Death Magnetic. It's hard to know to what length and then of course rob's got a co-write on man unkind which is cool he wrote that little intro section and i uh, but i think i think that like jason his biggest contributions to the band aren't necessarily creative they're spiritual and jason was a really intense guy who as you say correctly was a beast and brought the live energy great backing vocal um, and then for whatever reason became the fan friendly sort of the symbol of the fan. He was a fan who landed the dream gig and he his story sort of, you know, uh his story as sort of almost like a totemic myth reminds us all that dream the the realization of your dreams uh is possible. And so we we took we put all of that stuff, he represented a lot of that for us. And his first one in, last one out, gratitude, air of gratitude and posture of gratitude uh, was just really powerful. And I I feel like I learned a lot from him about how to be a good person almost, and be a good dude. And I I carry the spirit of Jason with me, you know. Now, Rob is a little less like that. He's a little less intense. But his spirit, similar to that, is one of of peace, mediation. Uh, He has a calming spirit. Um, he's like when Billy Preston joined the Beatles for Let It Be. His presence mellowed everybody out, and everyone wanted to be on their best behavior around him. They didn't want to be the buttholes they were to each other because they really looked up to this guy and respected him and didn't want to show their ass in front of him. Especially the first little bit of Rob being in the band. There was that involved. And... It's clearer now than it ever has been, but it was clear pretty quick that he was a great uh, neutralizing spirit in that band. He had the experience, you know. They'd toured with him before, but suicidal, obviously infectious grooves. But he'd had that experience with Ozzy, that was I think meant a lot to them because touring at that level with someone like Ozzy fucking Osbourne of Black Sabbath, the probably the number one band they all idolized the most. That's a heavy credential when you're coming into Metallica. And I think he had a reputation as a dude that's really easy to be around and work with. And what I see more than anything now is him pushing the other three to their potential. Um, His idea to bring a unique creative spin to every town that honors the town. He gets Kirk involved in that. Um, He's bringing out that sauce in Kirk. He challenges Kirk. He encourages Kirk. It's something they do together. They have this bond in the band that I think plays out musically with them. And it may even be as simple as that. It may be like, look, I want to have this connection to Kirk uh, because that that bond and that unit makes this band stronger. It makes us more likely to come together creatively to make a new record. We keep in touch more in an off-season. Um, you know, I think that he's the one that wanted to play Spit Out the Bone live. He was the one, according to Wes, our buddy who works in the tuning room, he's the first one in the tuning room. Uh, so these are just things that we can see, and you can just imagine how... What we don't see is within that same spirit, okay? It's like the the saying that people who floss, okay, live longer. Not because flossing your teeth makes you live longer. It's because someone who has the habit of flossing likely has other habits that will keep them alive longer. They pay attention to what they eat. They pay attention to their dental hygiene. They pay attention to their exercise. I think from what we can see with how Rob interacts with that band, it's so positive and healthy, and it's such a good vibe that I imagine what we don't even see behind the scenes, maybe on the business side of it, maybe on the uh, brokering emotional deals between James and Lars that we don't see. I think there might even be a ton of shit musically we don't see. The support angle. And that's what he shares in common with Jason. He's there to support Metallica. That's what Jason was always there for. That's what they need, and that's what's made them strong. So I I would put forth all of those things to answer that question. Okay, let's move on to what is easily one of my favorite records of the whole year. I've mentioned it many times. If you guys haven't seen it yet, please stop what you're doing, including listening to this podcast, and go check out Echo in the Canyon, the documentary about the Laurel Canyon mid-60s bands in which Jacob Dylan chronicles that time really well, I think. But another cool thing he does is he recreates a lot of these great songs and then they put out a a companion soundtrack that I just absolutely adore. Now, this is a Buffalo Springfield song written by Neil Young, and one of the threads of this documentary that is interesting that he that he teases out really well. Again, I can't uh, I can't recommend the documentary enough, especially when I sort of loosely try to you know shorthand these these themes. But they talk about how bands like the Birds and Buffalo Springfield, the Mamas and the Papas, the Beach Boys, the Beatles, um, all of these were groups, you know, and the strength of this material seem to really come from um, the power of a group dynamic and how what really changed things was when a lot of these bands split up. You know, David Crosby splits from the Birds, Neil Young splits from Buffalo Springfield, um, the Beatles split up, uh, the Mamas and Papas split, Brian Wilson sort of just starts to emerge preeminently as kind of the creative force of the Beach Boys. They're no longer really seen as a group. And they talk about how that's just really what changed everything, and they almost demarcate the time of the documentary from, you know, the birds doing Dylan's "Mr. Tambourine Man" electric, and this song that I'm about to play for you called "Expecting to Fly," which is one of the most beautiful songs Neil Young has ever written, and he wrote it in Buffalo Springfield, but he wrote it about quitting the band. This is basically him telling the other dudes, "I'm going to quit this band, and I have to go fly out on my own now," and and uh, it's a sad song, but it's really well. Uh, I can't recommend his recording enough, the Buffalo Springfield recording. Go check it out. This is Jacob Dylan and his amazing band, and uh, Regina Spector, uh, who's a wonderful artist in her own right, sings the second verse. So uh, without further ado, I'll leave you now with the Echo in the Canyon version of Neil Young's Beautiful Expecting to Fly. I hope you like it.
0: to flood.
1: Kind of a psychedelic freak-out ending there that goes right into this Bird song, and that's how the album ends. And it's it's this great song where Neil Young himself plays this great lead, fuzzed-out guitar. Anyway, highly recommend it. That was Expecting to Fly. Beautiful song. The first time I heard it, it, made me cry. I was at the gym on a on an elliptical machine, crying in the gym. Like a fool! Only fools cry while exercising. It must have looked pretty insane to the people around me. But that's how it happens, man. Sometimes these moments hit you, and you got to let them hit you like a wave, right? Maybe not. I don't know. That's what I did that day. That's all I can say. I think we have two more questions over on Instagram before we move on to the Twitter verse. Again, thank you all for the questions. Frayden's of San Jose says, do you recall a specific live performance from your early days where you said to yourself, Hey, I'm pretty good at this. I can take it somewhere. I don't really remember. I, I had a lot of moments where I thought it was less about me and more about like whoever I was playing with. I thought, Hey, we're pretty good. This is good. But I don't, I don't, I never had a lot of thoughts about like, I'm going to do this professionally at any cost. I just knew I was going to do it. And I think I just always assumed I would do it in, concurrently with whatever I had to do to make money. There was just no question that I was going to always make music. And probably just being an Alabama kid, kind of lower middle class, poor Alabama kid, I don't think I thought it was possible to only do this. And I, it's, it's just like anything. It's like you demarcate certain eras or times when it's, it's, it's putting a flag in sand. It's shifting and changes. And, you know, we age is a construct. We made all this up. Time doesn't even exist. There's no such thing as one thirty. Okay, you all know that, right? It's just sort of this loose flag in sand where we can just—it's a measuring point. And you know, you don't. There's not a day that you turn seventeen. All made up. And what's weird about that for like age and what's legal and not? It's like you know, you turn eighteen and then you can vote. You don't just turn 18 We—it's all made up. At this age, you can do drugs or buy beer or have sex or go to war or vote or get car insurance or whatever. And I get it. I mean, we have to have some we have to have some structure in this fucking life. And I think the age groups for where things tend to land are pretty reasonable. Pretty good catch alls, but some people mature slower and faster and all that. Knowing uh that you wanna make music or that it's possible, there's probably somewhere I could put a flag in the sand, but it wouldn't really be accurate and I think I just slowly leveled up indiscriminately. And before I knew it, I was getting paid to do this job. And then before you know it, you get paid enough to only do this job. And then before you know it, you're buying a car and a house. I'm not saying like I bought a new car. I'm saying I do them doing the things that all the other people are doing, but my job is to make music. And, you know, I'm raising a kid and I still just make music and the bills get paid and it makes sense, you know. So... I think, I think not being too worried about that was really helpful. Just keep your head down, do good work, try to get better at what you're doing, try to surround yourself with people who are better than you, and then learn from those people. Um, I was lucky when we came to Nashville, there were people that I reached out to to, to go to coffee with where there would a lot of it was conversations, mentoring-type conversations about artistic things, but there were some people that I met with where I was given a lot of help about how to practically do this. About insurance, about savings accounts, about 401ks, about slow seasons where there's no work, about navigating the political climate of Nashville, the religious climate of making art in the South as an atheist. I mean, I had all of those coffees too. And in a lot of ways, I'm still having those conversations. You know, if I've got someone like Rachel Loy in my studio, uh, we're writing a song and we're going to record a song, but half of it too is a lot of conversations about parenthood and about. Being about, you know, do putting your ten years in this town behind you and what the next ten years look like. I was just writing with Matt Billingsley, a good friend of mine. He's Taylor Swift's drummer. He's got two kids. We talked for almost three hours about fatherhood before we before we started writing a song, which, by the way, ended up being about our children. That I'm so proud of. I can't wait to finish it. We're gonna finish it next week, but um. Those kinds of conversations are so important. Still learning all the time. Still learning how to do this job. Still learning if I can still do it. Who knows, you know? That was a good question, though. I appreciated that. It was interesting to think about for a minute. All right, our last question from Instagram, at least for now that I can tell, is from my pal Chelsea Bowen, who says, what's your favorite record store in Nashville? Is there a restaurant suggestion or something cool to check out while we're there? Sorry, I know you probably get asked that too often. So far, we've got tickets to see Rustin Kelly at the Ryman, Haha, <laughs> Ethan. And we're going to the Preds game uh, at Bridgestone in March. Well, going to the Ryman, all joking aside about Ethan, who has not played the Ryman and honestly likely will not play the Ryman at this point. Um, the Ryman's are great. If you can see a show there, then the, 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 obviously that's a special thing for this town. And uh, I've, I've seen several bands there. And of course, as we all know, played there. It's just a special place. So that's going to be great. Um, the Preds game, super fun. Uh, that's that's definitely a lot of fun. There's a lot of you know understandable pride in Nashville these days because the Predators, our hockey team, have gone to the Cup. I think two out of the last three years, and that's always exciting when your like local home team is that good. Stanley Cup is like you know that's the end of hockey. If you win the Stanley Cup, you're the best hockey team in the world. So. Um, there are all sorts of cool places. Uh, if you're looking for great, authentic Mexican food, go to Mas Tacos on the east side. It is a jam. There will be a line. You will still like it. There's a burger place right across from that called Pharmacy, which is really good. And there's a burger place in, in uh, around Five Points called uh, Burger Up. Go check that out. There's also a really great grocery store over there with a good hot bar called Turnip Truck. I recommend that. There's also Five Points Pizza. So those are all good. Virago for sushi. Smiling Elephant for tie. For nightlife, if you want something cool, like you will see somebody at this place with suspenders on, okay? And perhaps even a Florentine mustache and perhaps even a monocle. I would go to Pinewood Social where you can, amongst other things, you can bowl in a little cool art deco, almost ironic bowling alley, if that's your thing. My favorite bar in town is a dive bar on the east side that's not very cool called Mickey's Tavern. In which the only light in the window is the same neon light from blue velvet that says, uh, uh, that says this is it. And it's a tiny little cool little shithole that, uh, that I've spent many a Nashville evening in. Let's see, what else is there? There's the grilled cheesery, which is nice. If you go to a place on the west side called Hop Daddy, they have a big-ass picture of me in there, inexplicably. It's like filled with pictures of local musicians and like at gigs and stuff. And I was doing a gig with my friend Drew Holcomb at Live on the Green. There's a cool picture of me wearing my fucking battle vest of all things. It was like in my battle vest season. Blown up in there. Good little burger, uh, beer joint. You can go see a movie at the Belcourt Theater, which is a rad little Art Deco theater. They usually show good stuff. What else in Nashville? What else? Uh, that, I'll probably just leave it at that. That's Those are the types of things that I do and I don't do much anymore cuz I'm a dad and I'm gone all the time. All right, moving right along. Now, uh, I had a lot of favorite records this year. A lot of my favorite artists did some cool stuff. This was the year of Post Malone for me. And not even really his new record, but for some whatever reason, I decided to start listening to Post Malone after hearing about him for the last 3 or 4 years. I tend to do that if something kind of really blows up, if it, it, it just whatever kind of puts me off for a minute, I just know it'll be there later. And I don't want to be a part of the hysteria about it. I want to just sort of find it on my own time. And I have a pretty robust musical agenda. So I'm not, I'm not like often starving for new shit. So these little cultural moments happen. And if they're not really fitting into my agenda or my timeline, I let them ride. And uh, this sort of found its way to me. His first record, Stony, which really just blew my mind. That's still my favorite one. And then I got his second record, uh, uh, Beer Bongs and Bentleys, which I liked also. His new record, Hollywood's Bleeding, is also very good. It's, there's a clear progression with this guy, who, by the way, is a huge Metallica fan. He went to one of their gigs uh, this year, took pictures with James and the band, and a lot of guitar in his music, a lot of rock and roll attitude. Plus, he's a really sweet guy. He's He's got tattoos all over his face, which is not a great indication of good thinking, but he seems like a really sweet guy. He seems pretty smart, emotionally smart. And this motherfucker can just write melodies. He, his, his records are just woven with melody and counter melody. It seems like what they do a lot is he'll lay down the actual main melody of a song and then it's like he'll do two or three passes of these overdubs where he's just sort of counter melodying and playing off his vocal. And these melodies are so good that they could be their own hit songs. And his records are filled with that. I love that. Another artist that really did that a lot is Peter Gabriel. Uh, I just have always admired that. Sting also does that. It's a real penchant for counter melody and the strength of melody. This is his single from his latest record called Hollywood's Bleeding. It kind of got swallowed up in the excitement of Taylor Swift and uh, Lana Del Rey. Billie Eilish, of course, swallowed up a lot of shit this year. This The, the oxygen was sucked out by Billie uh, and her amazing record, which we are going to hear from later, too. But this is, a, this is a great song. This was the single called Circles from Post Malone's newest record, Hollywood's Bleeding. It's an up song, which I wanted to play because it's been a downer here for a little bit. So uh, if you've never checked Old Posty out, give it a shot here. And uh, his records are deeper than you might think. And so if I can turn you on to it here in this moment, then uh, I will be proud of that. And if not, that's cool. We're going to move on after this anyway. So here we go with Circles by Post Malone. a little much to have the sound of like wild horses running away at the end i wonder whose idea that was and there wasn't someone around being like "Mm -hmm. i'm not sure we need that we're going to move it over here to twitter you can follow us on all the socials when we do these we like to interact with all of our listeners on all the socials ethan holds it down over on facebook because i'm not interested in that piece of shit format and um uh, let's let's move on I think we only have a few from Twitter So we're kind of wrapping this up I may even cut some of these songs I got planned Because I'm tired And I've got a bus call here shortly Tombstone uh, Asks Favorite Alice in Chains song Right now I'm loving Rotten Apple Wow that's a great question I love Rotten Apple That's track one on Jar of Flies Great bass line by Mikey Nez um, I love the song Sunshine Which is a deep cut from, from their first album Facelift that's one I go to a lot. There's also a great song on a deep cut on that album called "Confusion" that I love. I Always love "Sea of Sorrow" and "Believe the Freak." Nutshell is probably my longest favorite Alice song. I'm trying to think of what I love off of Dirt. I mean, I love everything on Dirt, but I always like the song "Dirt." I loved "Hate to Feel." I loved "Angry Chair." Um, yeah, I guess I, I I'm not picking one, am I? Um, I'll probably go with Nutshell. Although that's kind of what everyone picks, I like that you picked "Rotten Apple." "Rotten Apple" is a fucking awesome song. I go to sleep often to the album "Jar of Flies," and uh, I'm definitely conked out by the middle of "Rotten Apple" because it's such a—it's got such a long, brooding intro. It's such a creepy song. Heavy. It, it, they have this great mellow, heavy vibe where they—they could be so heavy, but it, the tempos are so slow, and it's the harmonies are so sort of dissonant. And anyway, that's a great question, dude uh alex writes what is your opinion on taylor swift well i think taylor swift is amazing and uh you know i'm not one of these guys that buys all her records uh i think i think they're okay um i thought reputation was really interesting she's like she's like a lot of great artists man she reinvents herself she's got a good head on her shoulders she writes a lot of her material she's extremely fan friendly she cares a lot about her fans she cares a lot about the world She cares about songwriters. She, in as far as I can see, uses a lot of her power for good things. And as any father of a daughter would tell you, she's a fucking awesome role model for girls. So in all of those terms, which are all things that really should matter to people as human beings, she gets an A plus from me. Musically, you know, her music isn't really written for guys like me, and that's okay. Um, I think her new album, Lover, is actually really good i was really blown away by how good it is i don't own it it was played for me on the bus by some of the other dudes in in rodney's band who are songwriters and producers who also love and respect her and have their ear to the ground on the work she's doing and um the song lover uh was the first song i heard from it and produced by jack antonoff it's got this great timeless feel it just feels like it's always existed And from what I can see in interviews and then how she presents herself, she seems pretty self-aware, pretty funny, and pretty smart. So that's kind of my assessment on her. And then, of course, just by proxy of the work I do in this town, some of my my close friends that I work with a lot are in her band. So I do get to hear from that side of that dynamic about what a great boss she is and how cool she is. And, you know, anyone who does what I do as a producer, songwriter, guitar player, you're looking at someone who sells out stadiums all over the world. We look. You're looking at someone who's in the top five biggest artists in the entire world. Um, if you're letting your genre preferences blind you to how cool that is, or if you think there's nothing to learn from that as an industry professional, then that's sad to me. And we recently got an email from um, what I can only guess is a raging douchebag that was attempting to belittle and berate me for vocally uh, talking positively about pop artists like Taylor Swift and Billie Eilish. Uh, which just, it makes me sad for that person. You know, I mean, I, it's probably unfathomable to them how little I could care about what they think about the music I like. Uh, it's really more of just a sad reflection of their small world and small mind. And uh, it's a common theme on all these radio episodes, and I think in a lot of our episodes in general, that music is magical and saving and powerful, and to put some kind of weird personal boundaries on that for other people is just so fucking lame and counterintuitive to the entire spirit of art and music. And sure, man, we poke fun at some stupid shit. There's some music I would poke fun at that I think is vapid and dumb and that I just I don't get. It's not for me. But I don't put too much of my energy into that language because really, really my response to music that does not I don't understand is like, ah, I just don't get it, you know? And I never wanted to turn into one of those old people that thinks it's too loud or thinks they're too vulgar or whatever, not counterculture enough, you know? It's the same fucking story. It's what everyone said about Dylan because they didn't understand his sort of beautifully insane subversive poetry The Beatles, everyone thought the Beatles' hair was too long. Think about that. People thought television was going to ruin the world, and people thought that fucking uh, Robert Smith was a transvestite. and People thought that Morrissey's uh, uh, asexual nature and the androgyny in his lyrics was going to corrupt the youth, and people thought that rock and roll was the fucking devil's music, and that Kiss, who paint their faces and sing songs about fucking chicks, were... Satanists. Okay. Or that Elvis shook his hips and now the, now, now, you know, the moral fabric of the American family is just going to disintegrate. Jesus Christ. People just fear what they don't know. And it makes people feel good, I think, to put other people down w- when they express opinions that they don't understand. So, uh, I think Taylor Swift's awesome, and I think if you are a curious individual, if you're a person who is curious about yourself and about the world around you, I think you should actually pay attention to the kinds of art that rub you, because there's actually something there that's interesting for you to discover, and that's not some woo-woo shit. I really mean it. Here's what here's what you don't want if you're an artist. Here's kind of the worst thing you can say about art is, meh, it didn't really make me feel good or bad. I didn't really like it or even dislike it. I have a completely neutral, non-caring response to whatever it was you just listened to or saw or read. That sucks. Uh, If people are outraged by what you're doing or saying or playing or confused by it or it elates them, that's what you're shooting for. Of course, you want everyone to like what you're doing, but sometimes you have a vision for something that's bigger than your audience. Dylan was massive. Dylan is probably the greatest shapeshifter in music history, and if you guys don't know much, I can't even break all that down for you, but it's way bigger than him just going electric, you know, like starting in the, the Hibbing, Minnesota stuff and getting into the folk protest movement in Greenwich Village, then he, you know, he, he goes electric, then he goes country in the late 60s, then he... <laughs> You know, then he makes these really far out family records living up in Woodstock. Then all of a sudden, out of the fucking blue, he's got blood on the tracks. Then he does this Desire and this Rolling Thunder review. Then, before you know it, he's a born again fucking Christian, huh? And he makes those records. I mean, and just he pu- constantly puzzled his audience. So, if you see a movie that just you walk out and you just feel like, oh, God, I hated that, you should be curious about that. Your visceral reaction to something should be uh, your subcon- is your subconscious trying to clue you in on something that you may need to pay attention to, all right? Uh, having said that, let's listen to something that might do that for you. I don't know. This is Billie Eilish when the party's over. Beautiful piece of music. She's going to win a lot of Grammys. I happen to believe they're well-deserved. Check this out. <laughs> Now, you may not like the video where she's eating the spider or her bury-a-friend intensity, like a horror movie. You may not like Bad Guy and the sort of trippy disco popness of that, okay? I understand. That's a little more aggressively, this one thing. But this song, When the Party's Over, this beautiful, enchanting, piano-driven, vocal-driven rumination on... Uh, on whatever it is she's talking about. I just don't see how you can dismiss that. I just really don't. It's just a fucking beautiful piece of music. And the fact that her and her brother, Phineas, who write, co-writes and produces all this stuff, the fact that they're on the planet making this stuff and that it has an audience uh, fills me with joy. gives me a lot of hope for future music and, uh, you know, it's always interesting to hear a song that you know is going to be a favorite song of yours for the rest of your life. I love whatever that master list is. I love adding new tunes to that. Um, so anyway, Billie Eilish, she, she got nominated for a lot of Grammys and I think she even broke the record for, she was nominated for four really specific Grammys. I think she's the youngest person to ever have done that. And I think she's going to win all of them probably. And not that that really isn't any big indication. I mean, if you've like really, if you, if you in good faith listen to that and you're like, look, I don't like that. I don't like the way it sounds. I don't like her voice. I don't like her deal. That's totally fine. That's not what I'm saying. I think what I'm speaking more to is the sort of outright dismissal based on external bullshit. And I've tempted to do that too. So I'm not preaching to anybody. Like, I'm just saying I've learned that I have to work against that in myself. You know, and that's a constant thing to learn, constant thing to be thinking about. Or what are your motivations? What are where is where are your gut reactions coming from, and are they trustworthy, or are they parts of yourself that you'd really uh, like to master more? Parts of your voices within yourself that you'd really like to to be a little more quiet. You know what I'm saying, Uh, Stan Drew. Says, have you ever spoken to Peter Minch or Cliff Bernstein? Be good to hear their side of the boys' work, particularly the early days and what they saw in them. We haven't. We haven't even really officially reached out to them. We reached out. I reached out to Q Prime about getting press credentials for the Bridgestone Arena gig. They never wrote back, surprisingly. Guess why? Because the, the email starts with Hi, my name's Clint. I have a podcast. Okay. I've mentioned this before, but that's just top three worst sentences ever. Hi, my name is so-and-so, and I have a podcast. Okay, it may be the coolest podcast in the world, which Metal Up Your Podcast is, but no one wants to hear what comes after that sentence. Here are the other two sentences. I had the craziest dream last night. I know that you want to talk to somebody about the crazy dream you had, because it was probably so crazy that you will go insane if you don't try to articulate some of the imagery and feelings that you had in that dream. That's really important. But here is something that's very true. No one wants to hear about that stupid fucking dream. No one wants to hear you sort of shittily tell the dream because as you're telling it, you're forgetting it. That's the nature of dreams. And dreams are just so mysterious and personal and odd, non-linear, non-narrative, that they never come out the way you think they will. It's just someone who must really care about you or be really kind that's allowing you to regurgitate your horrible dream. And this includes me. What's the third one, you ask? Here it is. I wrote this poem. Allen Ginsberg could come back from the dead and sit in my studio and say, hi, I'm the ghost of Allen Ginsberg. I wrote this poem. And I would not want to hear it. Oh, God, Allen. You're going to make me listen to a poem right now. How long is it? And if it's Ginsbergian, he's going to say, it's quite long. It's quite long, and it's quite intense. And I may even want to see the poem. I may be interested in what the poem says. I just don't want to hear it right now, man. Write it. Down. Let me read it later on my own time when I'm emotionally ready to hear a long, intense poem. Anyway, those are the three worst sentences ever. Uh, they never got back to us, Peter or Cliff, but I am hoping that sometime down the line in the future that we will be able to broker a deal with those two dudes because obviously their perspective uh, on... Man, not only signing the band, which we, by the way, thank you uh, unendingly to our friend Michael Alago for getting Metallica hooked up with Peter and Cliff and Elektra. Um, let's see. Uh, not only would I want to hear about those early days, especially as they pertain to one Mr. Cliff Burton, but throughout the whole deal, I'm fascinated by... I mean we've sort of reengineered it from the top down cuz we we have the benefit of, you know, looking back, but it just seems like every step of the way they made some great decisions like you know, getting from puppets get to one and de- deciding to finally, go, you know, meet MTV somewhere and then that turning into the black album and then touring that for all those years and getting Bob Rock on board and then the load and reload is going to be a double album, MTV and blah blah blah. Just we all know the story. And when you have good management like they obviously did and do They're a big part of this story. They're a big part of what got them out of the St. Anger crap, you know? And a big part of them being a big part of it, if I may get inception levels on you guys, is that it seems to be uh, obvious that for a lot of this, they stayed out of the fucking way, which is amazing. An amazing thing to me. They knew what they had, and they knew the power and the artistic integrity of this band, this group of people, their trajectory, their purpose, their power, and they somehow stayed out of it. Okay, that is an amazing accomplishment. I know. I and I would just I would have a million questions for those dudes. I hope it happens. You guys will be the first to know. I mean, for sure. And as we always do when we have guests, the patrons will be able to ask them questions. Whoever's going to be on the show gets to ask whoever questions. All right, one more here. This I believe this is the last question. Slash, which uh, the it's ha- at slash in chain. Says, do you think Oasis is overrated? Says Noel p- <laughs> Noel just played stupid simple chords and he thinks he's a genius. And he's so arrogant, like his brother, who sings just one range and thinks he's a real rock and roll star. I think they're just Brit pop a Brit pop band and would be better if not so arrogant. Okay, well, a lot to unpack there. Um, do I think Oasis is overrated? Not really. I mean, at the time that they were huge in the mid to late nineties. I don't even want to say they were overrated because those records are just good, dude. They were writing some songs that you just can't deny were just imprinting themselves on the fabric of culture. And that's powerful. There's there's something that you just can't really ignore about that. And the simplicity of the chords, I don't think has anything to do with it. Uh, you know, Mr. Tambourine Man is like three chords and maybe... One of the most powerful songs of all time, so I'm not really. That's not really an argument that's interesting to me. Um, Liam singing in one range also doesn't really. I don't think that's really true. I think Liam uh, actually has a really unique voice that that obviously spoke to millions of people, and. Later on in their records, Noel actually did quite a bit more singing. My favorite Oasis record is 2000 Standing on the Shoulder of Giants, in which Noel sings two or three of the songs. And Noel was the one writing them. And so there's also something interesting about it's Noel's creative voice, but it's his younger brother's singing voice. And their sort of bitter sibling rivalry dynamic was just such a big part of the chemistry of that band. You know, in a song like "Wonderwall" or "Champagne Supernova," or even before that, a song like "Live Forever," uh, "Rock and Roll Star," "Slide Away" was a deep cut favorite of mine from their first album. Definitely, maybe. I'm I'm talking; these dudes had some power that may be hard to see now. The reason I say they're overrated now is because they're not really part of any kind of conversation now. The only time they're a part of a conversation is when either of the brothers puts out a pretty passable solo effort like BDI or As You Were, then Noel's got the Flying Birds, which are pretty good. And then they, they'll they bitch at each other in the press still. And now that's kind of all, the, it's just been decades of that now. And I find that boring and gross and uh, unpowerful and just, I don't know, I'm not interested really. Um, so that's how I'll answer some of that. Let's see here. I think they're just Britpop and would be better if not so arrogant. Their arrogance is super annoying for sure. I thought the supersonic documentary about them was really annoying. Uh, we're gonna be, you know, we're the fucking Beatles. We're better than the Beatles. We're the greatest ever. Just all that stuff is a little much for me, you know. The the the, the you know, I agree. What can I say? I agree with that. Um, but there is a sense too where just that all went into the big stew, and they've got some surprisingly delicate stuff. Okay, go check out a song on melancholy. Or not melancholy. That's a Smashing Pumpkins on "What's a Story Morning Glory." Pardon me, called "Cast No Shadow." Beautiful song. Go check out um, a song on "Be Here Now" called "Stand By Me." Go check out a song on the Master Plan called "Talk Tonight." Okay, this beautiful song. That's Noel singing that one. Um, I saw them live on the "Standing on the Shoulder of Giants" tour in Atlanta, and I'll tell you what. In terms of rock stars, that was the one of the closest bands that when they came out on stage it was they were rock stars and it felt like when i saw kiss and no one's really done that since then i've seen tool i've seen metallica uh pearl jam i've seen a lot of great shows no one really came out and just had the power and charisma that oasis did other for me than kiss and i can't even really explain that but i can tell you i was there and i felt it and everyone went insane it was i'll never forget it to be honest with you that record has a lot of really strong material it never had a hit or anything there was a, a, a noel sung single called where did it all go wrong that's really good they made a video and they they gave it a shot or whatever but they were so big at that time it didn't really matter um I came out with a record after that called Don't Believe the Truth and another one called Heathen Chemistry that are both pretty good, but I start to dip off then. And then, of course, the band imploded, and that's the story of them. Now they just bitch in the press every couple of years. Uh, but their this album, my favorite Oasis album, ends with a fucking Barnburner song called Roll It Over that's like Oasis trying on this Pink Floyd epicness. And uh, it's one of not only one of my favorite Oasis songs, it's one of my favorite songs ever and I'm gonna play it for you now. From standing on the shoulder of giants, this is Oasis with Roll It Over. Yeah. Well, there you have it. Roll it over, by Oasis. Standing on the shoulder of giants. I love the trippy, slow burn build, creepy lyric, big, huge, epic chorus. I love all the background singers. A lot of textures. A lot of murky, mysterious uh, vibes in that song. You kind of, I just feel like when I used to listen to that song, and to this day, just now when this happened, you just close your eyes and you feel like you're in a three dimensional world, and you could like almost, you know, move your hands along the walls, and feel it. It's cool. That's quite an accomplishment as a song, in my opinion. Now, it's also super subjective. You might have heard that and thought and fucking yawned through the whole thing and think I'm, you know, an idiot for feeling that way. But I hope that maybe some of those feelings translate to you out there in Melody Podcast Radio land. Here's the deal. I got one more song. This is an artist named Sharon Van Etten. I've played some of her stuff before. She put out a great record called Are We There? I think in 2014. Beautiful record. You're going to have to go just do your own investigation for that. But then she, she, this is a New York artist, and then she got with somebody and had a kid. And so this is sort of uh, got her kid to about my kid's age, about five, where it gets a lot easier to do what we do. You know, the the first five years of having a kid are just so insane, so hard to travel and be a, you know, sort of a roving, wandering vagabond, as one Mr. Sir Hetfield has said. So I think her kid got to a certain age where it was okay for mom to go out on tour again and put this another record out. So as you can imagine, a lot of these songs are imbued with the tension of that journey. And she's kind of a far-out lyricist. I don't really understand often what she's talking about. But it works for her for me. I don't really need to know. And uh, I, I really just more enjoyed living in the world that these songs create. and. This is a record that I bought it without hearing a single note because I loved her last one so much. So you have some of these these artists, right, that you trust so much, and you're just on their ride, and whatever their new thing is, you're just going to get it. I I grew up doing that, and I really miss that. Uh, And she's one of these artists for me, you know. That's I just love that last record so much that I just bought it. And I honestly, man, I did not like the record very much. I was kind of like, but from what I was saying earlier. It, it, it rubbed me. It, it wasn't like a, I didn't have sort of a passive reaction to it. I sort of actively disliked it, and it kind of angered me, partly because I was disappointed, because I had high expectations, and partly because it was confusing. <laughs> it was, I don't like being emotionally confused. I spent actually a great deal of my intellectual energy trying to um, understand my emotions and understand uh, why I feel the way I feel, why I don't feel normal and untangling what's good and bad about all that so when art or when my relationships confuse me i don't like that but i trust hovering around a little more so whatever it's not a big deal it's just a fucking record i just started to listen to it more like there's something in this you know and like most art as you digest it more you you find places to put it and things grow on you and a certain lyric will catch your ear and then you'll 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 be endeared to it it's cool so I wish I hope people are still taking the time out there to continue to investigate art or films uh, instead of just the one shot, you know? But your first take of something is, I I truly believe, it's intuitively interesting, but also sort of in the longer stretch of things, unreliable. So this is a song, this is how her record ends, and I'm going to leave you guys with this. I'm not sure I'm going to come back later. Ah, maybe I'll come back and say bye, but this is a song called Stay, and... Almost like the Counting Crows tune from earlier, I want you guys, again, if you're in the cans, or if you're in your car, turn it up. Listen to the textures of this song. Listen to this really strange upright piano with like a weird delay on it. And how at first it's doing these roll, at first it's kind of going, uh, it's doing this kind of half roll into a diamond. Then when she starts singing, it just goes to these diamonds. And then it starts to move and roll more. Then these weird this guitar and bass come in, they're doing this really sparse thing, and they move together. It's really odd. And when that happens, the piano kind of goes away. The drummer's just holding down this cool electronic-feeling beat, and then as the song builds, all this interesting percussive information comes in, and this weird counter-melody synth stuff comes in. And if you're just looking at, looking at it on paper, it seems like a convoluted mess. But the sort of wonderful production achievement on the song it's like the cure we're masters of this is everything is in its right place and everything sort of plays off each other and it doesn't feel jumbled it doesn't feel like this thick mono everything down the center mess it has to do with the little pockets created the things they choose to fill the pockets and how what they're filling it with are texturally so different that they complement instead of rub so that's kind of your homework as we listen to the song. And if you don't even if that's kind of annoying to you and and you're beginning to get a headache because you don't want to go to school when you listen to a song, you can also just lean back and enjoy the sort of beautiful vibe of this song. It's called "Stay" by Sharon Bennett and came out this year. Here it is now. to do it for this edition of Metal Up Your Podcast Radio. We'll be back next week to have some more Metallica content. We're going to recap, of course, the year 2019, all of its ups and downs, all the good and scary things that happened in the world of Metallica. And we, of course, we're excited about our, our three-year anniversary party that, once again, for those of you who don't know, it's going to be at the Cobra in East Nashville, the same place it's been the last two years. It's going to be on Sunday, January 12th. From like 7 o'clock to whenever. And they're going to be all the usual shenanigans. There's going to be some trivia. Our friend Chris Yurgis is bringing uh, his his mini Metallica Museum. He said the hardest part was trying to figure out what to bring. Because I think he said his collection has like doubled since last year. There's going to be Lizzie and Joe from Hailstorm are going to be there. I think we've talked about maybe Jay Weinberg is going to be there. Just whoever of our Nashville buddies will be there. And then, of course, a lot of different chapter people are coming, a lot of different just people associated with the podcast, a lot of friends, a lot of listeners. People are coming in from all over the country. So it's going to be a really good time. Cover our Black and Volume 4 is out. The other three are available over at that Bandcamp page. What else is there to say? Is there stuff to say? Uh, there's decades coming to a close, man. And uh, I'm not a very sentimental person. I tend to just let the years wash by and try to keep my head down and try to keep learning. So I don't have anything really big to say about that other than it's been a really cool uh, journey of my life, a really unexpected thing to be a part of this podcast community, to have people like you listen every week and write in all the time and send us sweet stuff and to just, uh, you know, to let me into your lives as well. I've met a lot of you out on the road, and um, you know, what can I say? I'm really grateful. And as I think about the new year and like what my goals for myself personally and for my family and and for the work that I do, uh, Metal Up Your Podcast is still a really big part of it. And and it's work that I'm really still proud to do. And that wouldn't be the case without all of you. So it is with sincere gratitude that uh, I bid you all adieu. Happy new year, stay safe. See you guys on the flip-flop. Peace.